With no voice and a church that's gone country. Um, I, don't, I don't know what to think about that, but I loved it. I loved it. Thank you, Josh. Thanks for leave, leading us in a creative way and, and teaching us that we can worship the Lord in all different ways. Uh, man, that was fantastic. How about that video for the water park? Ed, fantastic. You and Tracy are awesome. That was great. I'm so excited about that. I can't wait for the competition. That's going to be fun. Elders, let's go, bud. We're, we're ready to rock and roll. Well, good morning. It's great to be with you this morning. Great to see your faces. Great to be back with you. Um, this morning, I got to be honest with you. I, I didn't like school growing up. Can anybody relate to that? I didn't like school, especially biological science. There's something about that that, you know, just... I could tune out and I could take a nap. In college, I think the only class I ever slept in was a biological science class. Um, if you teach science, I'm sorry. Uh, please don't hold that against me, but it's never been something that I've enjoyed. I know I've always been more interested in exciting things like history and English. I, I, you know, I don't know. I don't know. Um, but there are a few things in my maturity, as I've grown in maturity, that I've appreciated about science, one of those things being an ecosystem. I don't know if you knew this or not, but an ecosystem is a biological community of living beings communicating with the physical environment and other non-living components. In other words, an ecosystem is a place where individuals relate to one another, and if it's healthy, it creates a habitat where those individuals can flourish in the greater community. This morning, what I want you to see as we open up God's word this morning in Colossians chapter three, what I want you to see is that Paul is, is going to teach us that the Christian life creates a healthy ecosystem where all involved can flourish. In fact, what he's gonna say, I, I think this is what Paul's argument is in this particular passage, is that a captive life actually creates a healthy ecosystem. And as it does so, it provides an environment for all humans to flourish. Now, this ecosystem that I'm talking about is not what you may think. It's not something that you would learn in a biological science class, um, but rather it's the Christian home. It's the Christian home. That's what we're talking about this morning is the Christian home, which I don't know if you knew this or not, um, but the Christian home is the bedrock of society. The family unit, the family unit is the bedrock of society. And the reason why I say that is because it is the first institution that was ever designed and created by God. So all the way back in Genesis, if you go to the first book of the Bible, you're gonna see that God creates humankind. He creates Adam and Eve, he institutes marriage, he gives them a job, we're gonna talk about that job here in a minute, but he gives them a job to procreate, fill the earth with image bearers. Right? He designs marriage as the first institution from which everything else flows. And so the reason why I say that it's the bedrock of society is because it all begins with the family unit. All things living begins with the family unit. So that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. So with that being said, we're going to begin in verse 18 of chapter 3. If you would, please stand and honor the reading of God's word. We're going to read from verse 18 on to chapter 4. So we're going to begin chapter 4, and we're going to stop in verse 1 of chapter 4. This is the word of the Lord. Paul's writing to Christians. He says, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. That's important, fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. 
Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you, have, you will receive an inheritance as your reward. You are serving Christ, or you are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Chapter 4, verse 1. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a capital M, Master, in heaven as well. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. You may be seated. <clears throat> you know, you might imagine why in the world is Logan preaching this text? This text has been the source of a lot of disagreement, frustration, confusion, and you can probably add any word you want to this particular text. It's created it in the church, outside of the church. Sadly, this has been the source of much abuse. Um, and, and the reason being is because we have taken a good thing and made it a bad thing. We've taken a good thing, we've brought it out of its context, and we have used these things to abuse people um, and I want you to hear me very clearly because this is super important. That is not God's design. This is a good text that when it's rightly applied, creates a healthy ecosystem for those in a home to flourish, but also for those in society to flourish. So that's what we're gonna be talking about this morning. That's very, 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 very important for you to hear. So let's jump in here. I want you to understand as we think about this text, um, Paul's writing in a really difficult day. He's writing in a patriarchal society. There was this thing called the pater familia, familias. Simply just means whatever granddad says in the home goes, right? He's writing in a context where, um, for the most part, men ruled in places of power and influence. And to be honest, women were told that they needed to keep silent. That's the context Paul's writing in. Men were educated. They were trained for political office and places of power and influence. Um, whereas women were not. They weren't allowed to do that. Um, some women were fortunate enough to have somebody pour into them and teach them. Um, but it was not formal education as it were for men. So this is the context, again, of which Paul is speaking into. So when he's speaking these things, he's, he's speaking them into a very patriarchal um, brutal society of what we might consider abuse. Now today, we might read these words like submission and obedience, and we kind of cringe. Are you with me? You kind of cringe. It's like, oh, gosh, aren't you glad that you're not the one who has to explain all this? You're welcome. That's what I'm here for. Because here's the deal. The reason why we cringe and the reason why we kind of on that is because we're reading it with the very... Uh, a similar view of Paul's context. We're reading it with a view of patriarchy, a lens of patriarchy. We're reading this text with the lens of abuse. We think of submission and we automatically run to abuse. We think of obedience, we automatically run to abuse or lording it over somebody or taking something and um, abusing the authority that is given to s someone or something, right? That's, that's normally when we read these words, this is what? 
happens. But Paul, Paul, rather than condoning the abuses of authority that we might consider, what Paul is doing here is he's seeking to redeem and transform that which is broken in their society. So that's what you need to hear this morning. What Paul is doing, he's writing to a particular culture in a context, and he's not condoning abuse. That's not what Paul's doing. Paul's not um, arguing for abuse. He's not arguing for, uh, you know, taking a good thing and abusing somebody with the power and the authority that are, that's given to them. That's not what Paul's arguing. Rather, Paul is seeking to transform a culture and a society that has taken a good thing and made it a bad thing. So. Let me explain a little bit because I think this will really help. By the way, just right out of the gate, I want you to know that my intent today is not to give you the practical applications of how all this stuff works out. We just don't have time for that. And to be honest, I don't have enough voice for that. Um, But what I want you to see is I want you to see the reason why this text exists in the Bible and why it matters and why if you understand it rightly, it has a power to create a healthy ecosystem in your home and then also in the places you live, work, and play. So that's my, that's my intent. Okay, so to do that, we gotta go back to creation. By the way, in case you wanted to know, the most complex questions on this earth are answered in Genesis one through 11, just so you know. Um, so we're gonna go back there. Genesis chapter two, here's what you see. In Genesis two, God creates well, Genesis 1, God creates the cosmos, land, animals, water, oceans, all of those things. In Genesis 2, God creates his masterpiece. He creates man, Adam. He names him Adam. He gives him authority over the land and the animals, and his authority is demonstrated as God brings all of the animals before Adam. And you may recall this from Sunday school. What does he do? He begins naming them. You know, when um, you and I have kiddos, there's this really cool moment that you and I get to share in that when we welcome a child into the world, we get to name them. When we name them, that is a demonstration of our responsibility for them, our responsibility and authority for the child in which we have brought into the world, right? Now it's important for you to see that as Adam begins to name these animals, it is a demonstration of the responsibility and the authority that Adam has over those animals. He's to exercise dominion over them, which by the way, just so you know, God declares as good. That's really important. So when we hear the word authority, we need not automatically put that in a category of abuse or a bad thing We ought to see it as a good thing because God declares it so. The authority that God gives Adam in the beginning is good, it's very good. The first time that God mentions that something is not good is in this moment where God is, or when Adam is naming all the animals, um, Adam comes to the realization like, oh wow, I don't have a companion, I don't have a partner. And it's that moment when God says, oh, that's not good. That's the first time in creation that you will ever hear the words, not good. So what does God do? Well, he creates Eve, he creates woman, and he ushers her in before Adam. By the way, did you know that when God does that, that's where we get the whole idea of the woman walking down the aisle to the man? Did you know that in a wedding ceremony? It's because God, the Father, ushers in woman 
he walked her down the aisle to Adam. Isn't that beautiful? It's a beautiful, cool thing in the Bible. And as he does so, what happens at the end there? God, Adam celebrates it. He's like, yes, finally, thank God. And all the men said, amen. Right? We can relate to that. And then Adam does something very, very, very important. Adam names the woman, woman. He names her. It signifies a responsibility that Adam now has for his bride. And that's a great weight. Men, we're gonna talk about that here in a minute on what that means. But he ushers in the woman, Adam gets to name his wife and their God institutes what we now know is marriage. Now this is where it's really important. In Genesis 1:27, God reminds us that he has created them in his image after his likeness. And then he blesses them. Now as a part of that blessing, God gives them a job, right? So he ushers in woman, institutes marriage, then he gives them a job. He gives them something to do. Their role is now to represent him on earth as they partner together by exercising dominion over the earth and then procreating, thereby filling the earth with his image bearers. So that's the job that God has given them to do collectively. Now here's the key to what we're talking about with me this morning, so stay with me here. Adam and Eve are created in God's image, which means they are equal in value and worth, but in their job to exercise dominion and to fill the earth, they have differing roles as a part of that creation. As a matter of fact, those two things can't happen without two different parties. They have differing makeup, both biological and also in function. You put those together, makes a partnership. To use a helpful word, they complement one another in this job to exercise dominion and procreate and fill the earth. There's no hierarchy there. They're both equal in value and worth. But again, there's a difference, but their difference is necessary to complete this mission. Now, in addition to the biological differences, there is a difference in authority as well. God creates man, then he creates woman. That's important for you to see. In 1 Peter, Peter goes back to creation in this very same argument. He says, hey, listen, God created man first, then he created woman, right? He didn't do it backwards. God's very intentional. He's purposeful in all that he does. God creates man, then he creates woman. God gives the man authority, again, to name his wife, signifying a line of responsibility, a line of authority. So here's that line. You ready? This is important. You may write this down because it's going to be important. God, man, woman, together exercising dominion and authority over the land and the animals. Okay, you see that? So God, man, then woman, together, in partnership, exercising dominion and authority over the land and everything on the earth. This of which God declares very good. That's important for you to see because we wanna take those and we wanna flip those around and we wanna do all this kind of stuff, but listen, God declares this very good. It means it's perfect, it's right, it's according to his design. So again, it's important for us to see that authority is not a bad thing. It's not a matter of value or worth, 
but it is a good thing. In fact, it's a very good thing that is ordained by God according to his design. Now, this is really, really important. I keep saying that, I guess because everything's really important today. Because I don't want any confusion, okay? Here's where a good thing has gone bad. Here's where the good thing goes bad. In the fall, this good line of authority established by God is reversed. I want you to think about this. What happens in the fall? I want you to go back to Sunday school. You're, you know, you, here's, here's the events that happen in the fall. Satan works through an animal and he deceives Eve. She listens to the serpent. Adam listens to Eve and no one listens to God. See how that good line of authority is now reversed. So Eve listens to the animal. Adam listens to Eve. Nobody listens to God. From that moment on, from that moment on, the abuse of God's good thing has gone bad. It's now given an opportunity. Now, in Genesis 3.9, the text says that after the fall, the Lord enters the garden and he calls to the man and he said to him, where are you? Immediately after that, God questions Adam. He doesn't look to Eve. He looks directly at Adam in verse 11. And here's what he says. He says, Adam, have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, well, the woman that you gave to me. <laughs> she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. What does man do? He punts his responsibility. He blames the woman, but ultimately I want you to see what he actually does. He doesn't blame Eve. He actually blames God. Because he says, you know, the woman that you gave to me, clearly he forgot how he felt at the bottom of the altar down there when she was being ushered in towards him. He, he blames God. He punts his responsibility. In this scene, God goes directly to Adam before Eve was ever created. God commanded him, God gave Adam the command to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Before Eve was ever created, God went to him and said, do not eat of this tree. Eve's not even created yet. So it was Adam who bear, bears the responsibility to obey the word of God and to lead his wife in that truth. Now, sadly, Adam punts again his responsibility, blames Eve, ultimately blames God for their disobedience. And again, it's from this moment on that God's perfect ecosystem is broken. It's shattered. From that moment on, God's good order and line of authority can now be abused. Now, here's why all of this matters. The reason why I give you all of this why, this context, because in Colossians chapter three, here's what Paul's doing. Paul is taking us back to God's design and he's redeeming it. He's saying now in the new covenant, here's what this is supposed to look like. Notice that he doesn't just run with the abuse. No, he seeks to redeem that which is broken. That means Paul is saying, hey, this is a good thing gone bad. Let's make a good thing that's gone bad. Let's make it good again. And here's how we're going to do that. And so this is the ordering of how we are to, to, to do and live out God's uh, good design in creation according to the new covenant, according to the New Testament. So for us today, this church, 
This is how we're to order our homes. And when we do so, we create a healthy ecosystem, not only for our home, but also for society. Now, here we go. Here's what he does. He gives a series of directions, which is this text, which by the way, are not just directions, they're commands. All of what Paul is saying here are commands. These are not suggestions. They're not like, hey, if you feel like it, do this. It's commands, okay? So here's what he says to wives. Paul writes to wives. He says, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Notice what Paul says here. Wives are to submit to their husbands. Why? Because it's fitting in the Lord. It's fitting in the Lord. He takes this out of a cultural argument and he goes back to God's design, right? We want to make it a cultural argument. This is not a cultural argument. This is a design argument. God has uniquely designed us in a particular way for men to lead and for wives to submit to their husbands. Now understand when we talk about submission, what do we mean by that? Because I think we need to answer that question. To submit means to honor, respect, and follow. He's to honor, respect, and follow. It's God's design in the Christian home that we would, that wives would honor, respect, and follow their husbands. Now understand, right? When we talk about submission, we're not talking about subjection. There's a difference. There's a big difference. We're not talking about obedience. There's a difference. By the way, did you know that honor, respect, and follow, did you know we're supposed to, based on the Ten Commandments, honor all people? That we're to respect all people? Wives are to honor, respect, and follow their husband. Paul means this in a loving, positive way. Not a negative, not a pejorative way, a positive way. We take a positive thing and we make it a negative thing. That's not Paul's intent. It's not Paul's intent. Now here's what he says to the husband. Husbands, love your wives, period. Love your wives, doggone it. Love your wives. To the church in Ephesus, Paul would tell their husbands that they're to love their wives as Christ loved the church. How did Christ love the church? He took up an instrument of torture, was beaten, whipped, carried it all the way to Calvary, where he hung on that cross and he died for you and for me. Husbands, the calling on your life is to pick up a cross and to carry it all the way to your home. That means that you and I, the calling on our lives is that when we get home and we're exhausted from a long day of work, we set that aside and we kiss our bride and we hug her and we tell her how beautiful and amazing she is and then we go get down on the floor with the kids and we wrestle and we have a great time and we give her a break. It means that when we, f- we don't feel like it, we do it anyway. I can guarantee you, based on the Garden of Gethsemane, Gethsemane that Christ didn't really feel like going to the cross. Father, please take this cup from me, but not my will, but your will. Men in the room, to be a man means you pick up your cross and you love, care, and you protect, and you give your life for your bride. I love this 
great passage. It's a beautiful picture. Psalm 128 verse three tells us that our wives ought to look like well-watered vines in our homes. Why? Think about that picture. Don't think about the not so well-watered vine that's in my office right now. Think about the picture of a well-watered vine that's growing, that's flourishing, that's thriving, that's budding, even in dry seasons, man, it's budding. That's what your wife ought to look like. And so if you want her to honor you, respect you, and follow you, maybe we should start with watering a vine. That's the design of the Christian home. We're to love them, know them, pursue them, and cherish them, care for them, protect them. That's what God's designed you and I to do. The children, Paul says that they are to obey their parents in everything. As is written in the Ten Commandments, Ten Commandments, children are to honor, respect, and obey their parents, even when they disagree. Paul would even go so far to say in this text, he says, hey, listen, when you obey your parents, children, you're pleasing the Lord. You're pleasing the Lord as you do so. And then to fathers, again, which by the way, I don't know if you've ever realized this, but there's a very high bar that God calls men to. It's a very high bar. He says, fathers, excuse me, He says, do not provoke your children. In other words, as children are living in obedience to their fathers, dads are to not provoke their children to anger, but rather they're to love them, support them, encourage them, fight for them, cherish them. Listen, do you breathe life into your kids, men? You you breathe life into your kiddos? Or are you the dad who walks into the room and you expect them to get in line? Listen, I'm just going to be real with you. I I haven't met very many kids who want to love and obey a dad who walks into the room and they're fearful of him. But the dad who gets on the ground and loves them and breathes life into them and encourages them, man, you give me that dad any day of the week and I'm following him. That pursues a relationship, not a rule, not the rules. Listen, I'll follow your rules if you pursue me in relationship. You know, I bet if we spanned the room this morning and we were just real honest, which would be hard to do, but we could span the room on how many of you have some sort of, of, of daddy issue? What did it go down to? There's a high calling on us men There's gonna be a day where my kids are gonna have to work through some stuff because I failed them and because I didn't lead out the way that God has called me to lead out. And they're gonna have to forgive me for that. But I'm also gonna ask them for forgiveness as well because I'm doing the best that I can to follow Jesus and lead them to the cross and Lord willing, they'll follow me in my brokenness. But here's the deal, men, you and I are called to a higher calling and that calling is for us to give our lives for our bride And it's to love and breathe life into our kids, to create that healthy ecosystem where, man, they're excited to obey you because they see you obeying your heavenly father. What an image. What an image that would be. 
if they're following you as you follow the Lord. Now to bond servants, Paul says that they're to obey their earthly masters with a sincerity of heart. He commands them to work hard knowing that they are serving their, that when they're serving their earthly matters, their masters, they're actually serving their heavenly, capital M, master. You might be wondering what a bond servant is. Well, in Roman times, the term bond servant or slave could refer to someone who, is, who voluntarily served others. That's one category, there's a couple. But it usually referred to one who was held in a permanent position of servitude. Under Roman law, a bond servant was considered the owner's personal property. Slaves essentially had no rights and could even be killed with impunity by their owners. And all too often didn't have to answer for that either. You know, I don't know about you, because I don't want to skip over this. We could skip over it, but, but we're not. I look at that and I read that and I think, man, Paul, why, why in the world didn't you just abolish it altogether, right? Why in the world, Paul, are you writing this and telling these slaves to serve their earthly masters? Like, why didn't you just, why didn't you just say, hey, Christian Holmes, hey, let's put an end to this thing. But Paul doesn't do that. And so does Paul condone it? Is that, what, is that what's happening here? It's a question I've been asking. But I don't think that's the answer because I think if you had a, a holistic view of the Bible, you would see um, something quite opposite. In fact, a lot of Paul's writing, uh, you look at Philemon, you can look at a lot of different writings where Paul says, no, 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 free the slave. I think what Paul is doing here is he's not seeking to condone it. I think again, he's seeking to transform something that was normative in their culture. He's looking at this broken system and he's seeking to transform and to redeem this broken thing that exists in their society and in their culture. In fact, um, I love the way that a couple of different authors that I was reading, um, here's what they said. They said when Paul is writing and he specifically outlines and calls out a bondservant, what Paul is doing there is he is equating them with the family unit. He's raising their value and saying, hey, in the Christian home, you are not subservient to them. In God's economy, you are not subservient to them. You may be in culture, you may be in society, but in this house, you are not. In fact, in Christ, you are free. You are a brother, you are a sister in Christ. And so again, he's taken this ugly, nasty, broken, horrible thing that quite frankly is gonna stain our country for whoever knows how long. And he's seeking to redeem it and saying, hey listen, in the Christian home, you have value, you have worth, you are a brother and you are a sister in Christ. You are not subservient, but rather you have great value. Paul gives them value in the Christian home of which Paul, would say that the Christian home, again, is an ecosystem that ought to represent God's good design on earth and transform that which is broken in society. Now, finally, Paul addresses masters in chapter four, verse one. He tells masters that they are to treat their servants well, remembering too, they too are servants of their heavenly master. I don't know this. I don't know if you recall this or not, but Every one of us who have placed their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ is a slave to Christ. That's right. Every one of us. 
That means we no longer live for ourselves. That means I am no longer the capital M master of my life, but I have been given a new name. I've been given a new master. His name is Jesus, which is the reason why we follow what Paul writes in this difficult passage. It's because while I may not have all the answers, I do have a master and I trust my master to lead me and to guide me. And so I'm gonna follow him and I'm gonna submit to him and I'm gonna respect him and I'm gonna honor him and I'm gonna follow him with all of my heart because I know that he knows what is best for me. We all have a master. His name is Jesus. By the way, even if you're not a Christian, did you know that you have a master? There will be a day where you will have to stand before that master and you will have to give an account for your life. He's gonna ask for, literally, the good book says that at the end, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess Jesus is Lord, but you will either do that in relationship with him or you will do that separated from him for all of eternity. That's right. That's true of all of us. So the, what Paul's calling masters to on this earth, he says, hey, listen, don't forget the golden rule. Treat others as you would like to be treated. Here's what that means. As you were treated by your heavenly father who is good, who is loving, who is kind, who is forgiving, who is gracious, who is generous, you do that to the people who serve you. You see how Paul's transforming all of this? Okay, now here's the deal. Here's the key, secret sauce. Here's the key to all of this that makes all of this incredibly power, powerful. It unlocks the power in this text. It's the context of which Paul is writing. I want you to recall the last two weeks. In chapter three, Paul is talking to Christians. He's not talking to unbelievers, okay? That's important. Paul's talking to Christians in this letter. He's talking to those people who have placed their faith and their trust in Christ. So when he's writing these hard things that you and I might see as hard, he's writing to Christians who have placed their faith and trust in Christ, who are putting to death what is earthly in them. Remember that? Putting away anger and malice and evil desire and evil passions and all that. He's putting all of that away. So the dad is putting all away this this nastiness, these evil things, these earthly things, he's putting them away. What is the dad doing? He's putting on compassionate, kind hearts, meekness, patience, humility, bearing with one another, forgiveness, thankfulness. So when wives, he's telling you to submit to your husbands, he's telling you to submit to that character in the man. This is what ought to be among you, men. Wives, this is what ought to be among you. Children, this is what ought to be among you. He is not speaking to a culture that has not been purchased by the blood of Jesus, that does not have the Holy Spirit. He's speaking to a home that has the Holy Spirit, that's been transformed by the power of the gospel via the Holy Spirit so that we can actually do these things. That's the power of what Paul is teaching us here. It's that we are to be different. To the husbands, he says, do not be harsh with your wives. Why? Because you are compassion. You're compassionate. You're kind. You're humble. You're meek. You're patient. 
you bear with your wife, you forgive your wife, you're thankful for your wife. That is the power that transforms the Christian home. And it's the ecosystem that transforms society. This is powerful. This is a powerful tool, not for abuse, but for witness. Even Paul writes in Ephesians 5, he says that people ought to look at our marriages and they ought to get a glimpse of what Christ has done for us on this earth. Your marriage, your home is a witness to God's good and right design in creation that when functioning rightly becomes a powerful witness to all of the world of the gospel of Jesus. Does your home do that? If not, why not? You have the spirit, trust him, follow him, and allow him to transform your home. Will you pray with me? God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his grace that he would pursue us and that while he is our master, he is a good master who is kind and loving and compassionate and meek and humble and forgiving and patient. Lord, thank you for his patience. Thank you that he's patient with me. Lord, I know I'm frustrating. I know I'm hard to deal with and I know I'm hard to live with and yet you're patient with me. You're kind to me and you're good to me. Help me to do that in my home. Help us as men to give our lives for our brides that they may flourish, that our children would grow up and they would be strong, confident. God, that they would be arrows against the enemy because we breathe life into them and we encourage them and we gave them direction and guidance and we led them into your way that we led them into what it means to follow you because they see us following you. God, help us to not see this, te this text as abuse, but rather freeing, empowering, encouraging. Father, thank you that you can take a broken thing and make it a wonderful thing. God, help us to live by your design, to trust you even when it's hard knowing that you're transforming and you're redeeming us day by day. And when we fail, we can run to you and receive forgiveness. And when we fail one another, we can run to each other and receive forgiveness and grace. Father, it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.